Hey, NoosaCast listeners, you can find every episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Please help us grow by subscribing or sharing the NoosaCast with friends or follow us on Facebook, X, TikTok, or Instagram. Now, let's get this show on the road. Get yourself set up for the year. And once you get your ski lesson in and and your rentals and you decide you want to try shooting biathlon, next thing you know... You'll be addicted to that, and you'll be out there as a, as a biathlete skiing races a couple times a month. Welcome to the NoosaCast. What is a NoosaCast? It's where we bring local folk stories to life through conversation. All right, NoosaCast listeners, thank you for coming on and joining this podcast for another week. Uh, we are on episode 22, if you can believe it or not, and I, I'm super excited about this episode, Joel. Uh, we're we're talking some science. Yes. And some of the things that I actually talk about in my class as far as nucleation of water droplets, turning them into snow, <laughs> which is absolutely fantastic. I I mean, from a science standpoint, I could this interview could have gone in a whole different direction. But I tried to keep it out, keep my science geekness out of this. You did a great and, job. Uh, we just... You did a great job containing <laughs> yourself. I know you were excited for this one. <laughs> it is. It's it's a good episode. I mean, I think you guys are going to enjoy. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about a U.S. Olympic training facility right here in Northeast Wisconsin, in in Brilliant, and uh, it's the Aaron's Nordic Center, uh, a biathlon training center. It's. Uh... First of all, I'm just completely blown away that this is literally in our backyard. Remember when we talked to Joe Vandenacker and he, and he said that there was a creek that ran under the Bontable and I was just yeah. blown away. I'm like equally blown away on, on, on this. I mean, Tash in Brilliant, there's a U.S. Olympic training center for the biathlon. I mean, I, I can't even right. I can't even fathom that. And then a couple of the this is open to the public. I mean, this is an absolutely yeah. unbelievable facility for you know five five miles of cross country skiing. They they have um, you know it's lighted, but you can use it year round. You, you know you can use your inline right. skates, um, running, walking, and, and obviously in the winter you can cross country skiing, snowshoeing. I think they uh, have designs for a fat tire, uh, a fat tire biking area in the winter. I mean, this is right. unbelievable. I think January twentieth, they're even have they're having a fat tire race. Yes, yes. I think he mentioned yes. so. And a beautiful facility um, that hosts weddings and banquets, uh, the Round Lake Farms. That facility is incredible as well. Um, encourage people to get out to Brilliant and check this out. Uh, you know, we have a little snow on the ground as we're recording this, and a little bit of snow over the overnight. And I, I'm sure it's absolutely beautiful out there right now. Oh, absolutely. And they, they have, they actually have a Christmas experience at, uh, at the Nordic Center. So. Go out and check it out. I know that's something I'm going to be doing here in the next couple of weeks, going out there. And Tash, before you and I recorded, we, we were talking about, you know, it's, it's the holidays, right? Little hot chocolate and right. cookies and, and, and all of that. They have all of that. That's all included in your complimentary tickets uh, at the Nordic Center, which I'm not sure people, I didn't even know where this was, but they have a fantastic website. Tash, you can probably describe where this is even located better than I can. Yeah, it's just it's just on the east side of Brilliant. 
Um, you know, just on the outskirts of Brilliant, beautiful, beautiful area, uh, hilly, not super hilly, but not when you think of biathlon and you think of what you see on the Olympics. Um, but uh, a really nice area. Go get a good workout, get a good cup of Joe, hot chocolate after, and uh, and enjoy. You know, be outside and enjoy it. That's what we're here in Wisconsin no, for. Absolutely, and it's exactly why we started the Newsacast to hear stories like this. But we'll get into that in a minute, Tosh. How about you? I mean, you have a nice Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's a good one. I, my parents are down in Florida, so we don't get to see them for Thanksgiving. But we uh, we talk with them and and uh, see how they're doing. But we get to spend some time out at the farm. Uh, did a little bit of hunting. Uh, Will Will got a got you know a small deer, nice. but you know we get some venison sausage made and some venison hot dogs. And um, you know it was it was a good weekend. You know it's it's always fun to be with family. It's always uh, fun to continue that hunting tradition. Uh, we didn't get the big buck that we're after, but you know, if everybody got a big buck every year, uh, hunting would be a lot yeah. different. They wouldn't be called hunting. hundred <laughs> percent. And of course the week started off, you know, we, we had our parade episode last week with Corey and, and Eric right. and another successful night for the parade. It was a beautiful night actually, uh, weather wise and just a, just a great parade again. I had, we had, that was another great episode. I had a lot of fun talking to those guys and, and uh, just to see the parade unfold again. Another another successful event. Yeah. And if you didn't catch that episode, I encourage you to. Uh, there's so much more that goes into the planning. I mean, really, the three Appleton par- uh, parades, it, it's a year long planning. Yes. And uh, there's a lot that goes into that Christmas parade. Um, so if you if you didn't catch that episode, I encourage you to go back and take a listen and get some of the uh, insights into the background. Of, of what it is and even a little bit behind the scenes of what goes into making a parade like that happen. Absolutely. Did you get enough to eat, Tosh, this weekend? Oh, of course. I mean, you always do on Thanksgiving, Absolutely. right? What's your favorite Thanksgiving food? You know, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I like it all. It's my favorite holiday. I love stuffing. It's it's weird because you don't. Okay. Why is it that we don't have stuffing more than like once or twice a year? It's so good. <laughs> it's true. It's not good for the diet, though. Do you like the homemade stuffing with like gizzard stuffing when you put raisins in and all that kind of stuff? Or are you like, give me a box of stovetop <laughs> and a bunch of butter and cook it down? It, at times I can do that if I ever do stuffing, you know, any other time that's non-holiday, it's usually the stovetop. So can certainly, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against that. That's for sure. Um, but I love the homemade stuffing and I've actually, it's weird because yeah. my, my mom's stuffing, not, not to make this a cooking show, but it was okay. It was good. Uh, but I've come to find the discover that there's better stuffings out there. And I guess now I'm kind of partial to the ones where you put Jimmy Dean breakfast sausage in and um, okay. eh, maybe even a little apple or something, some onions, stuff like that to give it a little flavor. Yes. And um, yeah, just go to town. How about you? Uh, you know, I, I feel that a lot of the food that I have on Thanksgiving, I also have during the rest of the year, but there's one thing that that I don't usually have, and that's pecan yeah. pie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's probably it's not good for you. It's <laughs> it's sugar. I mean, but you know, I, you can get pumpkin pie any time of the year. Make turkey. You know, we 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 do we hunt. We do some turkey hunting. So I make turkey. You know, after we you know a fall hunt and stuff like that, or maybe the spring season. Um, yeah, it's the pecan pie, though. I don't, I don't usually have pecan pie unless it's uh, right around Thanksgiving. 
man, I love sweets. Tosh, there's one thing though that that's really associated with Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas, and that's the old ocean spray cranberry right out of the can. You slice that baby open, right? There you go. Giddy up. Yeah, it, it better have the lines yeah, absolutely. in Absolutely. <laughs> well, Tosh, now that I'm hungry and ready to go eat, uh, what do you say we get the show going, huh? Yeah, let's mention one more thing, though. What a fantastic uh, Packer win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was very nice. That Man, Surprisingly nice. I was not expecting the way they looked. They looked fantastic. Came out to play against that uh, tough Detroit team. Yeah, Tosh, it always... It's always special when the Packers win on Thanksgiving. It's a good good start to the year or a good start to the day for sure. Absolutely. It was yeah, that was it made it makes the sun a little brighter, the grass a little greener, and the sky a little bluer. That's for sure. Yeah. All right, Tash, our favorite segment of, of the show every week. An old look at new. We take a take our unique look back at uh, something maybe historical, something we don't normally think about, and uh, maybe apply it to our area of, of northeastern Wisconsin. So, Tash, what uh, what are you taking a look at in, in the old new? Well, you know, back in the day of the NFL draft, it was a little bit different than it is now. It's not the events like Green Bay is going to have it in 2025, and schools are going to be off and all kinds of stuff. But um, back in... 1956, the draft was actually held on November 26th in Philadelphia. And that was the year that the Packers had the first pick in the NFL draft. And they chose a player out of Notre Dame, the golden boy, Paul Horning. Wow. He was the first first player who won the Heisman to be drafted number one in the NFL draft. What an incredible stat. You never would have thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. The golden boy from Notre Dame. Red Smith's alma mater, by the way. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, Lombardi stated that he was the best, the greatest player that he ever coached. And he held records. I mean, his points record stood all the way until 2006 when Lindalian Tomlinson uh, broke the record for points um, in in, in 2006. You know, great charger running back. So that's a long time. Oh, absolutely. Some of the records, I mean, even Hudson has, has some amazing passing records that go on for 80 years. It's hard hard to believe. But, yeah, I mean, Paul Horning, certainly my dad had a lot of great stories about him. And, and you know, we've all heard stories <laughs> of, of the 60s Packers and seen footage. Yeah. I mean, he, he was he was a great runner, very shifty with his hips. I mean, there's that famous, I, I can't remember what game it was, but the snow cover, the Packer sweep, and he just shifts his yep. hips and finds the hole and and scores and I mean he was he was a playboy the stories off the field were just legendary with with that guy but um <laughs> man what a, what a team what a team and and I'm still blown away by that stat so the first Heisman Trophy winner to be a number one draft pick in the NFL pretty crazy how about that too Tosh November 26th is is the draft <laughs> exactly that's that shocked me too I'm, I looked at looked it up and I was like this this can't be right. So I had to look it up like three times. Yep, November twenty sixth, nineteen fifty six. At oh, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it was in Philadelphia at a hotel in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite the same as it is today. Yeah, I guess the NFL has changed a bit, huh? A little bit, a little bit. So Joe, after that, what do you have? Well, Tash, you know what? One of the ideas with with this segment is is to take a look at northeastern Wisconsin and and. I'm guilty of this. I mean, we we all drive east on Highway 10 out out to Manitowoc. We go through brilliant time, and 
right there is is you never think about it but but errands it is it's the large i mean yeah. we cut our lawn we we blow snow we we till our our lawn we're always using errands equipment you never think about it and and in 1933 i mean henry errands started another company that started in a garage it's amazing how many companies started in a garage but errands <laughs> in fact started in a garage in 1933 in brilliant and it's you know four generations now it's still a family-owned business yeah. i mean they are brilliant but it's just it's absolutely hard to believe and as as we talked to, to sean during during the interview you know a lot of of the reason biathlon nordic center was built was because of an Aaron snowblower you know out the other side of the world somebody knew what errands was because yeah. they were using an errands snowblower and and to me it's appropriate to have this in in you know an old look at new because it's a huge part of the, this this area i mean they employ geez i don't know 1500 plus you know people i mean yeah. it's 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 mammoth uh that that company that organization and then what they do to give back to this community is, is we're going to find out in, in sean's interview and and it's it's amazing what they do yeah, I drive through Brilliant almost on a weekly basis out to the farm in Reedsville. And uh, it, it is an amazing company. They do a lot for that community. Uh, it, it, it is the life and blood of Brilliant. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful organization. And, you know, the Nordic Center is just going to add on to their legacy. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, everybody wants to have an Aaron Snowblower because they're dependable uh, they know what they're doing, so it's it's a it's a great company. Uh, love to hear everything that they're doing for that community and support that little small town. No, absolutely, and there's way too much to mention, but they do have a really cool museum. It's it's worth going to and and, and taking yeah. a look. So I, I would highly recommend that. And Aaron speaks to what what we do. I mean, thank you for everything that they do for giving back to the community, and uh, we enjoy having them in an old look at new. All right, NoosaCast listeners, you are in for a treat. Uh, you're going to learn about everything from snowmaking to trails to biathlon with uh, the one and only Sean Becker of the Aaron's Nordic Center, uh, the GM, first ever GM of the Nordic Center. So the Aaron's Nordic Center is something you, you kind of maybe heard that, oh, something's being built, but you never really thought about it. This is the first time I actually sat down, went to the website, which everybody should do to start off with because it's a fantastic website. It gives you an idea of what we're talking about. But I had no idea what, what this place was. But then I started reading about your story. And, I mean, you grew up – I mean, you found a niche on, on how to groom trails and make snow basically, right? I mean, that, that's your niche. That's what your expertise is, right? Yeah, and it was all on a volunteer basis. Uh, you know, we um, we had this problem, and you know, because I I come from the southern part of the state, you know, and uh, so I still live right in Delafield area, and yeah. um, you know, it's a little little bit of a hike, but uh, this opportunity doesn't come along very often, so you got to <laughs> take that. Um, but but you know, the, the problem we had here is we didn't have natural snow, and the ski trails that I skied on as as a as a youth. Um, you know, we're right in this area and uh, there was a, a park manager here and in the, uh, at Latin Peak that uh, named Ed Music that was starting this snowmaking operation. And, and I thought, boy, this, this is ambitious and, and uh, I want to find some way to give back to a sport and a venue that had 
really helped me uh, grow as a, as an athlete um, and as a person too. And so um, decided to get involved in, in that snowmaking part of the operation. Knew absolutely nothing about it. I knew about, you know, waterworks background and, and I knew about electricity and, and I knew how to make a pressure balance loop. And I, I knew how to run crews. And I thought, no, oh, this is gonna be a big opportunity. And then I get into it and I find out it's like myself and Ed, um, and then a guy by the name of John McCarthy and a few other uh, guys that were were around that for a long time, the same kind of feeling they wanted to get back into um, into what, what was uh, happening at Lapham Peak and then try to be able to get the season started sooner or make it through the season when we didn't have natural snow. So um, yeah, it was, um, really um kind of figuring out how to how to make snow when you don't know much about it so that was that was kind of i don't want to say like early internet but it was when there wasn't a lot of information out there so like um as i learned i would impart that knowledge out to other people and and made like snowmaking videos and 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 then the early days of twitter was trying to keep people up to date on on what was happening out there so um taught myself that and then realized that snowmobiles were really difficult uh pieces of equipment to groom with you know historically that's what parks have always used, uh, but they burn up belts when you've got these big hills that we had to climb. So um, I researched about ATVs and adding tracks to them and, and how those would be beneficial and um, found some found an ATV and found some tracks and in Shatek and drove all the way up and grabbed my, my tracks and put them together on this machine, bought a used um, grooming implement from uh, a guy by the name of Eric Anderson up at ABR, um, which is active backwards, re backwards retreat up in uh, Ironwood, Michigan. And, and uh, he's just an authority on grooming. Um, so I figured if I bought a piece of equipment from him, I could also get a bunch of information from him at the same time. <laughs> and it actually worked out really good. Um, and a great relationship to have with a great guy. He, he was a groomer for Olympics and things like that at Salt Lake yeah. City. Um, so uh, I came back and, and started learning how to do that with that machine and then felt, you know, a friend of mine and I, Ben Lund, uh, who is a TOCO tech team rep in the area, which TOCO is a, a, a ski wax. And so they have tech team guys all over, all over the place. And he and I got into uh, um, a master's program together and decided that we were going to do mobile cross-country ski lessons. Uh, so we took that to uh, Bayshore Town Center uh, on the roof of a uh, um, of a, uh, a parking structure there that they didn't, uh, that they really didn't do any um, plowing of, which was great. And then St. Joe's Hospital out in uh, Jackson also wanted to have something similar. And, and so we were able to produce that um, in those areas and, and give free lessons to people um, every single week um, that we had snow during the, during the winter. So, um, wow. Yeah. And then, um, you know, learning the, the snowmaking operation that we had there at Lapham was, uh, you know, we didn't have a huge pond to make snow with. And we had a deep well and we didn't really have a, a water source yet. So we we would take turns, Ed and I sleeping in the pump house with an alarm <laughs> clock on our chest. And then every time that uh, we time out how long it took to fill a collapsible fire tank, which is basically a big tarp in a frame. And, yep. and we'd have to reach over every 20 minutes, the alarm would go off and you'd reach over and you'd turn the pump on and then you'd go back to sleep and set it for 10 minutes. And then at 10 minutes, you knew it was full and you'd shut it <laughs> off. So you had these 
you know, the circadian rhythm was really screwed up because you were on and off and on and off. Um, but we would take turns doing that. And, and it, as we built that system um, up with the park, uh, you know, staff and, and, and volunteers, uh, we built that up into a, a viable snowmaking operation. And so, and I had stopped doing it kind of cold turkey uh, 11 years ago. My, my son was born in October um, and we found out two weeks after he was born that he had cystic fibrosis. So my wife called me as I was out like trying to help, you know, get snow guns set up and ready to go for the winter. And she called and said, we got problems. You got to get home and, and be dad now. So uh, that's what I did. And it kind of stopped at cold turkey. And um, and then oddly enough, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Doug Bodock, who, uh, who I taught how to ski early way back in the day. And now he's an elite level world ranked uh, Nordic skier. Um, he, uh, he, he kept saying, you got to go check this thing out. It seems got your name written all over it. So, uh, I went on and, you know, after a couple interviews and that's kind of how I ended up at Aaron's Nordic center. <laughs> wow. I have a question. I mean, going back to your childhood, you obviously were in, involved in skiing. How did that happen for you? Um, you know, I grew up, um, in in uh, in in a small town, smaller town, um, you know, outside of uh, outside of Milwaukee, and and we didn't um, we didn't have like a ski team in high school or anything, okay. and uh, and I had I had a, a guy a couple a family that owned a ski shop in Watertown that my parents were big cross country skiers. They'd go on these trips to Three Lakes and 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 okay. have these you know week long trips with friends, and they'd come back with stories about guys with clister in their hair for a week. And, and so you know what clister is? It's a really sticky wax used yep. in warm conditions. You know, <laughs> so it's like toothpaste, and and uh, it's on everybody's car. And you know, it is it was just really cool um, to be involved in that culture. And so, um, you know, my parents had me skiing from a young kid. So I would see some of these guys at the archery club is where we had our ski races and, and the guy who owned the ski shop would go and trudge in the ski trails. Uh, and then we'd go out and ski on them in the races afterwards. And they were pretty ad hoc. And, you know, the timing was, um, you know, a stopwatch and a, and a, and a piece of, you know, the clipboard basically way different than it is nowadays. Um, but I was skiing with some really inspirational guys and the, the Momarts family in, uh, in Watertown owned that ski shop. And uh, John uh, Momarts, who was a, a few years ahead of me in school, uh, was really inspirational because he was a really good skier. And um, and he ended up uh, having some surgery. He had a, he had a brain tumor. And, and I remember being in school and the whole school was like, my gosh, this is something we never see at, you know, a seventh, eighth grade level, somebody having surgery and, and, and for that sort of thing. And he bounced back and he was, you know, in a junior Olympics and, and was a was skied at uh, NMU in college and um, ended up turning uh, into a race director and organizer for one of the larger ski races, marathons in in, um, in, in northern in northern Michigan uh, that that goes from Ishpeming all the way down to the NMU Dome and finishes yeah. there. And it's it's called the Nakamana. And um, and I saw John, you know, early on skiing well, and I thought, but he'd, he'd call my mom and say, can you take him to this race? Um, and uh, or can I take him to this race? And then they'd wax up the tips and tails of my skis and and send me off. And I felt like I was like uh, I was getting to ski with these really good skiers, you know. And uh, so that was inspirational for me. And then at, when I was in um, and, you know, kind of skied just as a citizen skier, as a youngster. Um, and when I was in, in um, middle school, I didn't make the cut for the basketball team. And, and the way I, I felt like kind of got discarded as you didn't make the team, well, you're worthless to us now. And I thought, well, 
all right, I'm going to be a cross-country skier. Um, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go full on with this cross-country skiing thing. Uh, got turned on to um, the guy who coached uh, John Momerts earlier on, and his name is John Spouty. And he was a woodwork, is a woodworker outside of um, Watertown and just uh, a phenomenal uh, craftsman and um and, and, you know, one of the really cool things about working with him as a, you know, middle schooler was that he never really treated me like I was a kid, you know, and it was never, you know, kids say dumb things and, you know, you never get treated that way. And so, you know, he let me grow and, 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 um, as an athlete and, and as a young guy, you know, coming up yeah. through high school and, and take me to these races out in the Northern Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and it was, it was a great opportunity to have to, to try to really, get to be a good cross country skier and, and, sure. and try to become a good person as well. So it was great yeah. to have good guidance from, from, you know, other than my dad and my mom, you know, that's having that, uh, you know, they, I, I figured they put me on the skis and they sent me in the right direction. And then I could meet all these different people on the way that helped get me, you know, up to that next point. It's, it's so, I think every single interview we've done, it always comes down to a couple people who are super big influences. And it, it, it's a common theme. It's it's amazing to hear about people who have just, you know, I'm going to take you under my wing and I'm going to, I'm going to do this for you and help you out. And it's always good to hear that. Uh, you know, I, I can think back to our childhood and stuff like that as well. And um, that's awesome to hear. It's just incredible people taking you to different places. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was, it was great too. We had our kickoff um, last September. We had the uh, U.S. Biathlon national team here yeah. and they were, they were uh, doing a, a kickoff event and, and uh, I was helping run, organize everything and run everything. I look across the barricades and there's my ski coach and his wife, you know, <laughs> they came out and, to support me in, in, in my new role and, and uh, you know, to, to take all of my background and everything else that I've had along the way and to actually turn that, as you said before, Joe, niche into a job that doesn't always get to happen. So that's why I'm, uh, my managing director said before there's days that Sean's just still pinching himself. And, and that is true. <laughs> that is true. I love that. Those those are the best kind of jobs. And I'm sure you love your job just because it's like that. Did you, even growing up, did you always kind of have that MacGyver mentality where you're just fixing things, understand how things work? It just, you just make it work somehow, some way. Uh, yes. I, 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 that's a testament to my dad. I worked with him for a lot of years in, in water treatment and, and, uh, it was, it's always problem solving, um, you know, and, you know, early on putting a, you know, a screwdriver in my hand and teaching me how to change my own oil. And, and, you know, those kind of things I'm trying to impart onto my son. And it's like, when you don't turn the screwdriver the right way, I start to get upset, but I got to understand there's a learning curve there. So, you know, um, there, you use a hammer for a reason and a screwdriver for a reason. So, you know, those kind of things. And, 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 um, and yeah, it, I think it, I fell into that. I went into entertainment production as a, as a side job while I was doing, um, you know, the water treatment work. And, uh, and once I could get my, my dad, always said, if you get your real stuff done all day, you can go do whatever you want. And so that turned into the moonlighting as, you know, in, in, in entertainment work and uh, concerts work, staging work, things like that. And every day it's, you know, it's, that job was 80%, you know, troubleshooting 10% doing what you're supposed to be doing your job. And the other 10% is just, getting your butt handed to you all day long. Right, so, right. you know, those there's always, you try to see all the angles, you hope to try to see all the pitfalls. And, and I think that's kind of why I, um, really like the, the grooming aspect of things and the snowmaking aspect of things, because it is all troubleshooting and you're making snow at three o'clock in the morning. And that's when your temperatures and your humidity are right. So, um, 
that to me uh, is a really that troubleshooting and you know and and learning about safety and, and trying to keep yourself and everybody safe. You learn from your experiences in a day that you uh, don't get yelled at for something or chewed out or or, or learn something's a day lost. So that's kind of kind of that MacGyver part of it that um, that uh, it's interesting because I've been called that quite a few times <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I like not not too many people know what that means anymore. But uh, I'm glad you guys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do you what what do people criticize you for? like the conditions of the trail is that that the big one well yeah you know in some respects snowmaking and grooming is a thankless position and anybody that hasn't groomed or made snow they, they don't actually would understand would understand what that means but it it is tough because everybody thinks that when it's 32 degrees outside you should be making snow why aren't you making snow and there's a science behind it that people need to understand kind of the i'll take a take a term from uh, uh, Sten Feldheim, who was the NMU coach, cross-country ski coach, and it was a how-to, when-to, uh, why-to of, of kind of skiing. And, and, and um, it's actually uh, of snowmaking, you need to have that same, you have to subscribe to that same thing. There's, there's a, a certain temperature and a certain humidity uh, that you're able to make snow at, but then you also have to be responsible with your um, with your snowmaking and your resources that you have, you have so much water to use, you have so much time to make snow and you have got electricity costs and everything else. So you have to really do it purposefully and responsibly. And that can start to become a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a problem <laughs> because everybody like, well, you have snow machines, so you should be making snow. And, and I think some people think it's a, a machine gun where you just <laughs> shoot it on the trail and you're done, but there's like a curing process you have to go through with the snowmaking and, and, you know, yeah, you're three o'clock in the morning and you, you're wet pants and jacket and hair and everything is frozen. And, um, you know, you're just trying to, to model your way through. So that's, you know, normally, I don't really want to call it a criticism so much, but that's what we kind of get hit with frequently. I've always been hit with that. So way back early on when I was doing the snowmaking at Lapham Peak, I, I made like a, a snowmaking 101 video and, and it was more so for the education process and more of the, like the troubleshooting aspect of things to me, led me to um, subscribe to the fact that if you educate people ahead of time and do some, some PR work that you can help kind of level those expectations a little bit. Um, and then the, the the other problem that we sometimes run into is that I, I want us grooming every single night. So one thing that I always say, and this is my my, my saying, it's not, not Aaron's Nordic saying, but my saying was world-class every day. I want people when they come out to ski to have a world-class experience. The venue is already world-class, but if we can make the snow conditions world-class as best as we possibly can then when people come out they have a a better view of 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 uh, the product and a better view of the venue and you're kind of only as good as your last trail report that's on you know one of the websites or social media or something yep. like that so you want to try to make sure that we're doing that so i tell my guys when they're grooming um that they should want to at the end of the night lock the gate, take a picture of it, and then send it out to their friends and not let anybody ski on it. You want it to be that good uh, of a product at the end of the night. And so by doing that and grooming every single night, there's other ven other places, uh, you know, parks um, that that have, have uh, cross-country ski trails. 
but on those in those parks, oftentimes they gotta go clear the parking lots first, or they gotta go make sure that the buildings are open and, and cleaned up, and they're not necessarily grooming at those points in time. So there's some days that it might not groom be groomed uh, on Monday on a Tuesday if it hasn't snowed in a while. Um, but when we do it every single day, now now we're creating this really nice surface for everybody. And I've noticed some people say, you know, there's a little bit of a ridge in between the two parts <laughs> of the trail, and you know, and I get it. I, I ski it and I, I can see where something like that is. But at the same time, you could go somewhere else and it looks like they groomed with a Sherman tank last night and <laughs> and that's acceptable. So, yeah. you know, we kind of make our own bed and have to lay in it, I guess you could say. Um, but I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to, to get that. If it is criticism, at least I know, uh, you know, what the rebuttal is for it and, and can explain the situation. So that's kind of uh, kind of what we get. Sure. So. Last year, I, I, I'm in a total different boat. My kids are hockey players, so I put a rink in our backyard, and it was a terrible year for for ice and for hockey. <laughs> I rink oh, yeah, yes. a lot. So, how did conditions? And you know, last year, looking back, um, how was the weather for for the uh, Nordic Center? It's terrible. It was terrible, <laughs> just like what you experienced. Yeah. You know, in in the, I don't want to say in my how many years of snowmaking, you know. Um, I remember times when it wasn't good um, and then it was really good. You know, we, you always want to get like that 20 degree, 20 degree and below really dry air. And then you can really excel in your snowmaking. And the old snow guns we had, like the 1970s vintage snow guns that we used at Lapham Peak were really excelled at like 15 degrees, really dry air, and they would make a ton of snow. Um, so, but I never really remembered a time where we had 50 degrees and rain and it was a week long of that stint. Uh, yeah. We literally made snow in the end of November and I believe we made snow for three, two or three days and we didn't make snow for another month. Yeah. And it was just because of that, you know, you need, when you make snow and you leave it in a, in a pile or what they call a whale, um, they call it a whale cause it's, uh, it's heavier snow in the front of the pile and lighter snow at the end. So it kind of looks like a whale coming up out of the water oh. and then you put them all together. So they call them whales. I mean, it's, it's an older term, but you know, still, um, holds true still today. So, um, when you, when you make that, pile of snow or that whale of snow, it kind of acts like magic shell. If you remember the chocolate you put over yep. your ice cream, same sort of concept, the water will shed off the top of it. So if you make snow and then you see like this, like I know the guys up in Hayward at Berkey made snow, but there's going to be like two more weeks where they won't be able to make any snow. We got these right. 40 degree days, 50 degree days, and, and then there's some rain in between all that. Just leave those, those piles sit and not plow them out so that it sheds the water and then when you know that you have got a good stretch of good temperatures then you can go and push all those whales out together and then it ends up making you know an even trail so okay. you know we plow ours out so that we've got two about two two and a half feet deep all the way around our trail system and about seven and a half meters wide so you're you know we're about 24 feet or so yeah. of uh of trail width so that's that's kind of what uh, Mother Nature kept delivering. Those we'd we'd have those uh, those times where we'd be open for four or five days and then closed again for three or four days. So when I look back at it, um, you know, it was it was such a scramble. My 
we had about 40-ish days, 43, 44 days worth of actual skiing this year yeah. where we were able to be open for that. Um, but really difficult with water infiltrating into the base. The nice thing is we're private. We can close, you know, a, a state park or a county park can't close the ski trails. It can recommend right. people don't go out there. But as soon as they go out there and rut it up, that's going to, as soon as it freezes, you've got a disaster on your hands. So um, we were able to slow that down a little bit. People weren't too happy about it, but after the fact, they come back and they're like, oh, we can't believe we get to ski again. So with with mother nature being a real problem this year, we, we still were kind of south of Highway 8 and north of where Lapham Peak and you know the guys over yeah. in Blackhawk that have man-made snow. There wasn't a lot in that area of the state. So, so we really had a, a lot of good business um, Good. Uh, just because of that. Is, is this like the state of the art snowmaking equipment now that, at this facility for you? Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have 17 snow guns. Um, 14 of those are fan guns. So your traditional, when you see it, people call them can snow cannon or something that you see on the Alpine Hills. Generally, those are mounted 30 feet in the air on poles. So they get good hang time and then they can just swivel them due to wind speed and direction and everything and ours are on carriages so we we're mobile we move them around on on the facility so we've got a pump house that houses a pair of uh, pumps we are able to deliver 750 gallons per minute out to the to the snowmaking system and that's at 425 psi so you know that's um it's it's that part of it alone with with our pond um we got about 10 million gallons of water that we can utilize um and we have buried pipe throughout the entire course so alpine areas historically you know they've got the reservoir down low or they've got a reservoir up high that pumps down a uh, gravity fed and then they feed back up but then they have to drain all the pipes out because the pipes are laying on top of the ground um, in our case they're buried eight feet below the surface in many areas uh, so we're allowed to keep our system charged year-round and then we've got power at each of those locations. So we just take the snow gun over with 150 foot of uh, cord on the end of it. And our our hydrants and our pedestals are roughly about 200 feet apart. And we're able to set those snow guns out with 100 feet of hose or 150 feet of hose, make a whale, pull them back, make another whale, and then pull it out of that space and move it to another location. So I can literally show up, if I have my snow gun set up ahead of time, anticipation of making snow, I can show up, go to the pump house, be making snow in 15 minutes. Wow. Snowmaking for Nordic um, doesn't happen a lot. It's a lot of infrastructure. Um, you know, the, some of the areas that have it, they'll double duty with an Alpine area that already has snowmaking and they'll kind of shoehorn their, their, their Nordic area in to be able to use some of that snow for it. But it's, there's not a lot of areas that have it buried pipe. Um, you know, and Lapham does have that, you know, they've got an HDP system over there that we put in because it was easier for us to fuse pipe together than to hire welders out. So we could fuse it with a machine, flop it into the trench bury it with our power and get it all up and running. Um, here they had like the gas line guys come in and weld the pipe together. And, and it's just seeing it happening was just an amazing uh, process that they were going through. It looked like they were putting in a subdivision, you know, for, for yeah. water and power and all that kind of stuff. So um, it is truly the, the snow guns. Um, 
their process they use. We use a company called HKD. Um, there's, there's quite a few different snowmaker, you know, snowmaking companies that are out there. These guys um, uh, have pioneered some parts of their technology that they have um, on their on their snow guns. Um, I always historically used in other companies, and I've fallen in love with the machines that these guys have. Uh, their nucleation process is is pretty slick, and and that kind of goes into the science of all of it because you you have water uh, that goes into the snow guns, and it comes out through a nozzle, and you spend especially essentially just have you know a mist, and that water is being atomized. Um, it doesn't really turn into a snowflake uh, when it's being atomized. Um, you have to have a nucleator. So what they have is four nucleators that are set up inside of this kind of ring or this halo that they have. And that um, is met with air and water together at a point uh, in the gun. And that's coming in at seven, a ratio of 700 to one. And that creates a particle as that comes out of the snow gun and it acts as a catalyst then to create more facets onto those nucleated water droplets and the rest of the water then through convection currents and the fan blowing process creates more snow so the key though is that you have to be regardless of whose snow gun you have you have to be at 28 degrees wet bulb and that's okay. there's a there's a scale that they have for that so you could have zero percent humidity and 36 degrees and it's potential to make snow but it's going to be pretty expensive snow because your pumps are running the same yep. uh, your snow guns running the fans running the same it's just how much water you, are you putting into the snowmaking system or into the snow guns at that point so um they, yeah, they've, they, these snow guns do really well um, in the open areas that we have, which most of our venue is open, kind of like an Olympic venue where you got a lot of good vantage points. But we do have some areas that go in the woods and we can't use those big fan guns in the woods because the water, the, 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 when it's coming out of the gun and it's making snow, it's fairly wet. And if you catch tree branches, now you're pruning with your snow guns and you don't want to do that. We want to be a little more careful and responsible with it. Um, so we have these guns called phasers uh, and they're just a head that is probably 20, 20 or so inches tall, has a bunch of nozzles on it and it has that air compressor on it as well. So it's got nucleators that are built into the gun, but it makes a band of snow that's super narrow, I don't know, 10, 7, 10 degrees wide. But at low temperatures we'll put those out if we don't have any wind and you walk away and you come back a couple hours later and the snow's almost touching that that phaser and it's like a stick that's 15 feet tall and it's like wow. whoa and i gotta drive the snowcat up to push that over so <laughs> it's sometimes pretty surprising uh in the right conditions but you know in the past i only had six eight you know five six eight snow guns to work with now when you're set up with you know 17 snow guns it's kind of like a golf course when you get done mowing the first hole and you get yourself all the way around, you got to start over again. When you set these snow guns up, you get done with 17, you got to run back and look and is the wind affecting number one? Is it still making snow? And out of all of this high tech stuff that we have, um, we have a very high tech um, uh, tool that we use to check whether or not we're making snow. So we start firing this stuff out, it's flying in the air. 
you get the, the gun running, you set up another one. You want to make sure you're not making it too wet because if you're making it too wet, it's really you're making rainbows is what you're doing. You're not really making <laughs> snow. Yep. Um, but in at, yeah, at night, you can't see that, right? So you you walk out in front of the in front of the gun and you hold your sleeve up. And if your sleeve turns white, you're making snow. If it's <laughs> wet, it's raining. <laughs> it's time to go back and turn it down a little bit. So with as uh with as bigger rainbows as we can make with these things shooting about 300 feet uh during wow. the day i was starting to think is there a way we can rent these things out to like kids parties and you can say i have a true rainbow or two guns <laughs> and get yourself a double rainbow or something yes uh, we might be able to i had the mobile grooming thing now we're gonna have a mobile birthday party rainbow set up <laughs> see how well that goes over <laughs> is there any better spot for you than three o'clock in the morning and your 17 guns are just blowing a, a great mist on a cool winter night is that that's got to be peaceful as heck when the when the wind's not blowing and the snow coming out of the guns you start kind of getting these steam plumes around things and when it's super quiet the thing that you use the most and i got i got into this with the old uh smi guns that we had at lapham is they had a a, a, a thing on it to to tell you if the gun was getting out of balance and it was a pipe that was around another pipe. And if it was rattling, then you would know you're out of balance and you got ice build up and you got to go fix the gun. So you would just stick your head out of the shop and you'd listen. And if you heard a rattling, you'd go out there and fix it. With these things, it's just like, um, it's just constant white noise in the background. And it's <laughs> it's really something to see when you when you look at it. My, my favorite is, you know, if I get everything going and then I get crew running and then I go home and then come back and I'm coming back just as the sun's coming up. The pictures that you can take when you've got the snow going and these steam plumes happening around the snow guns it's just it's it's picturesque for sure and so yes peaceful calm it's all that and then you get in the piston bully and then shove it all around and destroy all of it so it's, uh, <laughs> part, part of the process that's right it's yeah. nice while it lasted yes exactly <laughs> well i was just gonna you know everything you just described i mean this this place is an absolutely insane facility it just begs the question we're, we're sitting here and you know, brilliant Wisconsin. How and why? Why was this facility built? How was it built? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable that it's right in our backyard. Yeah, you know, that was kind of the question too, um, that that I had, you know, why is why is this happening there, you know, in in brilliant? Why is why is Aaron's family? Why, why are are they doing this there? And, and so a little bit of the history on it is that um, so uh, there's an athlete on the national team uh, by the name of Paul Schomer. If you're familiar with Paul at all, he's from the Kimberly area. Yep. Um, so he's over on World Cup, and I don't know exactly. I haven't gotten out of him the city or where he was over in, in Europe. But um, he saw an Aaron Snowthrower in, uh, in one of the one of the power equipment stores over there in, in Europe. So now, wait a minute, Aaron's there in they're in my backyard, you know, they're in brilliant. And at the time us biathlon was going to be losing their, their main sponsor. So he, uh, contacted, um, Aaron's and, uh, and asked, would you guys be willing to sponsor the us biathlon team? And they said, yes. And, you know, I thought to myself, I want to meet who skis in the family and, you know, Nobody, nobody shoots biathlon. Um, nobody had skied at that time. Now they, now they do. <laughs> but uh, before that, you know, I think they, they fell in love with the sport. They were over in, uh, my understanding was it was in Roop Holding um, and saw it there. And, you know, in biathlon in Europe is like, uh, 
NFL, uh, you know, games here in, in the States. Um, they'll have upwards, some venues can, uh, they'll have a hundred thousand people watching wow. biathlon. Um, if you get a chance to watch any biathlon world cup biathlon and make sure you watch like pre COVID, um, because all of these people in the stands and out on the course and they like camp out in the snow, you know, for days, some of these guys saw one time they like dragged a big kettle out and they stoked it with wood and that was their hot tub. And they did it on a corner where the TV <laughs> camera always comes by and they're all drunk in there and writing their, you know, Norwegian flags on their chests and all that kind of stuff. But when, when the athletes enter the range, you could hear a pin drop. So it's kind of like PGA meets Super Bowl. And they have five shots at the range. They hit the first shot. The crowd goes absolutely crazy. But then they they stop again because the next shot's going to be seconds after that. And this goes on and on and on for 30 athletes around the course the whole time that they're skiing. So I think that that the family, you know, really fell in love with with the sport by seeing it there. And then also, you know, being able to to help, you know, with with their needs. They're it's a really small organization compared to us ski and snowboard or help, you know, with, with Alpine or, or anything else, you know, or, or some of the other, um, the U S sports. So they're, they have to raise their own funds and come up with their own ways to get their athletes and the athletes fundraise themselves too, and, and get their own sponsors. So, um, I think that they felt that this was a good opportunity. And, and again, they're in Europe. So, you know, there's snow throwers and, and lawnmowers over there. So um, that's some good exposure as well, I believe. Um, but so part of when they said, what else can we do for, for us biathlon? And uh, at the time, the, the, the uh, CEO of, of us biathlon was a gentleman by the name of max cobb who kind of came up through the ranks and was their ceo uh he was with them for 30 years 30 30 to 35 years somewhere in between there and i remember when i interviewed i got to meet max uh and he's asking me these questions and it's kind of like getting to meet if you're in football getting to meet the president of the nfl and he's going to interview you you know it's <laughs> kind of shaking in my boots at the time, but super easy guy to talk to and really, really smart guy and, and forgotten more about biathlon than I'll ever know, obviously. But, um, you know, they said, what, what else can we, can we do? And he said, well, you know, we've got, we, we need to, we need to elevate the, the, the plan for Olympics. We need, we, we need to get some, you know, uh, us athletes in the medal counts, uh, for biathlon. And, um, so, you know, the, the thing is to, to feed the pipeline and to feed that pipeline, we need youth junior athletes to start now. And yeah. then hopefully by the time they're through high school, college area, you know, those ages, then they're, they're, they're really good. And then they can pick them up in these camps that they do these talent ID camps and, and, um, see if we can get them into the, into, uh, into the world cup and, and, um, then into the Olympics. So the idea was to build something in the Midwest uh, that would be able to help Midwest athletes like Paul Schomer and, and Deidre Irwin, who's another okay. one from, from, uh, Pulaski. And they both, they're both here. They train when they're in town, they call me up and say, Hey, can I come and shoot and ski? And it's like, yep, I'll brush everything off and get it all clean and ready for you guys to go. And they're out there skiing and training at the same time other athletes are. So okay. I think part of that, um, you know, providing this venue to be able to help the local clubs that have biathlon, um, be able to have a place where it's consistent. It's snow all winter. Um, we've got roller skiing during the summer and that just doesn't 
all happen in one venue very frequently. The the Olympic venues um, out at Mount Van Hovenberg, which is in Lake Placid, they have a biathlon range, same that we have. um, And then they have roller skiing as well. and you go out to Soldier Hollow, which is where the 2002 uh, Winter Olympics were, um, and they have roller skiing and a biathlon range, and they have snowmaking, and so uh, we're kind of at the same level of those those venues. And uh, we recently just got our uh, venue designation as National Training Center for U.S. Biathlon, which is great too. So um, I think that building it and getting it to this point and getting that rec- recognition for what they've done is going to help build the pipeline for us biathlon going forward. So I think the love of it, but the family saw being able to back a us sport, uh, that's, that's happening over there and then being able to build it here. And it, it's a field of dream situation. Yeah, we build exactly. it, they will come and, and they've been coming, you know, we get teams here all the time and, and for, for to have a group of 60 out there on a, on a Saturday morning, roller skiing is not, um, unheard of. And, and wow. it's, it's great for, for, um, you know, the leadership to be able to come and see that sort of thing happening because we are, um, we're, at, I, I sound like I'm tooting our own horn here, but I mean, it, this, this is unique. This is so unique oh, yeah. to have in this area. And, um, so it's, it's great, uh, great for us to be able to provide that. Over the years, does the entire U.S. biathlon team come here, stay in the area, train for, I don't know, a training camp or something under that scenario, preparing for the Olympics? So we've had them once, about once a year, we see them for a few days. Um, and then we try to build a um, some sort of uh, event around that where they'll do an exhibition race or something for us. Um, or we did a pro-am race this last uh, time they were here, which was great. Um, so that young athletes could get teamed up with the national level athlete and a national team athlete and somebody that skied the Olympics. And you get the time to not only compete with them, but then ask them the questions about why is your rifle like this? And how, how did you get to this point? And how do I get to where you are? So that's unique to have. So, and then, you know, like I said, Paul and Deidre, they're here frequently throughout the year um, as they stop stop in they're able to uh you know come and train i think deidre a couple times a year is here paul's here a couple times a year um other than that the u.s biathlon um organization will put on uh, what they call talent id camps and they'll they've got athletes that they would do all the way from alaska all the way through west coast central east coast and so they want to id those younger athletes that are coming up and their shooting skills and their skiing skills and um, so during the summer we have a few times when those coaches are here and they it's like an invitational type situation they'll bring in athletes from from uh, you know, we had Midwest was our primary area here. So we had Indiana and we had, which was interesting. We have bi-athletes that come all the way from Indiana to, <laughs> to work out here at times. Wow. Um, and they're obviously state champions because I think there's like two of them total. Um, but Michigan, um, you know, uh, Iowa, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, um, anybody in the Midwest that has bi-athletes and those team captains come and they get their athletes into the event um, and then they run them for a few days. And it was, this last year was the first one of those that we that we had so it was great to have you know a handful of coaches from us biathlon and then about maybe 15 athletes or so maybe 18 athletes that we had here and you know all younger high school aged um athletes that are that are wanting to get to that next level and to have that shooting and skiing uh coaching coming directly from former 
you know, Olympic uh, athletes like right. uh, Tim Burke and and from uh, Lowell Bailey and and John Farah and um, and then um, you know we we get we get Brian Halligan here too, who's the youth and, and junior development coach, and and these guys are just being around, breathing that rare air. Uh, I'm able to like get some of that information. So the next <laughs> time that the high school kids are out, they're saying, "Hey, what am I doing wrong?" And I might not know, but I did hear somebody say this before, and I stayed <laughs> at a Holiday Inn last night. So here's what I said to them, and and they take that that kind of information. But you know, I can only do so much with that with the athletes. And, you know, if the national team athlete came and actually said something to them, the same exact thing, but then told them to do it holding the lightning rod and standing in a puddle of water, they do it, you know, just because yeah. it's the <laughs> national team athlete. So it's really important to have those guys here periodically and have them, in, uh, you know, mix in with those athletes and, and even master athletes just to give them pointers and tips on what they're doing or, or how they can get better too, because it's, it's really important for us to keep not only that pipeline fed, but also have the master athletes who are going to have kids or have kids. Mm -hmm. And those kids are coming up and we want to make sure that they get that experience as well. What are the numbers like at, at the youth level? Um, and at least in this area uh, or, or Wisconsin generally that, that, that do the sport that ski. Um, biathlon is very, very small. Um, I would, I would, I've said this before where we put on a, uh, just a Nordic ski race and we get about 125 people show up for it. Biathlon, their regional race, their big regional race that we held last year, I think had 75 people. Okay. Um, when we hold races during the, um, during the, the month, we have roller ski races once a month on a Sunday. We have one coming up on this uh, this Sunday. Um, we have anywhere between eight and 15 people show up. And that's across the board from, you know, uh, youth uh, all the way up through masters. Um, there are a couple of teams locally, and I think each of their teams maybe have about five or six kids that are, that are interested in biathlon. So it's, they're, they're not huge numbers. Yeah, I, I would imagine. Um, getting back to the to the Nordic Center, you mentioned everything that it has, but I mean, this people aren't aware. I mean, this is open to the public as well. You have daily passes, yearly That's passes, correct. but you have not only the skiing, you have mountain biking and snowshoeing, and I mean, you can do just about anything you want to in the winter and summer, for that matter. It's it's I'll say it for the fifth time. It's just incredible that this is there. <laughs> Well, we appreciate that kind of review, Jill. I'm, that's uh, that's so good. music to my ears. But yeah, so um, we have um, not only roller skiing during the summer uh, and uh, biathlon where you can do try it programs every Wednesday or every other Wednesday. You can come out and get into a program where you can try shooting and decide if that's something that you want to get into or not. Uh, we run those with our range master, Greg Pattison, who's just uh, an authority for me on, on, on biathlon. But and, and the community can come in and do that. Anybody can do it. I mean, you don't have to have any experience. We like it when groups come in to do that. We can kind of, you know, friendly competition between each other. But we also have free walking and running on our trails during the summer. And that's summer only because once we get the snow down, there's no walking on that. Yep. Um, uh, mountain biking is um, a little bit further out on our radar. Uh, we're in a planning and design process right now um, to, to get a, a single track um, course down that doesn't impact the ski trails. Okay. Um, so we still want people that we, it's kind of a mixed use venues, hard to try to keep 
people want to ride right down asphalt, but we don't want muddy tires on our asphalt because we need to keep that clear for roller skiing and walking and running. Um, and, and we want to get in some agility type course and also like strider bikes for the little kiddos. So it's not just somebody that's super experienced to come out and mountain bike and they can hit jumps and, and do all that kind of stuff. But, um, we'd have like a pump track involved in this, which allows mountain bikers to ride an area without even pedaling, which is pretty cool. But we'd be putting in, um, in the design phase, we have, uh, A and B lines. So if you don't want to take the jump, you can take kind of the wimps way around the side. If that would be a way to say it, or just not <laughs> as experienced, don't feel like you want to, you know, yard sale or anything like that. It's pretty, uh, pretty easy to go around. Uh, so we're looking at implementing that probably next fall. Um, but in the near term, last year we were strictly Nordic skiing. Um, and we kind of identified that our numbers aren't, um, really um, high on like Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. So from 5 to 8 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights, once we have snow, uh, we're in open for fat biking. And uh, when I met with a couple people that that uh, are authorities on fat biking in the uh, Green Bay area, they said, I said, well, try to do some fat biking off trail once we get natural snow. They said, we want to ride right down the middle of that trail. That's what we want to do. So I said, <laughs> okay, we'll find a way to do it. So we're actually holding the Snow Crown Series here this winter as well. So um, that's going to be uh, in January and I believe the 20th. And so we're going to do a full fat bike race uh, out on the trail. So you have interest in those different things. There's a crossover between skiers and fat bikers too. So hopefully some people come out and ski for a few hours and then at 5 p.m. go grab their fat bike and grab something to eat and then go out and ride. Um, but we, we're, we're open for, for the majority of those um, those different activities. So once we get to, to mountain biking, then we're going to be able to span through the year much better. So Sean, I bought my very first, well, it's used, but I bought my first fat tire uh, just earlier this year. So I'm itching to, to try it out. Well, yeah, we, I know a place. So <laughs> I do too now. <laughs> so going back to the facility, um, trail wise, what are we looking yes. at as far as distances and things like that? So I'll start with our smallest trail, which is the uh, asphalt roller ski loop that we have, which is meant for roller skiing, running and and, uh, and walking. And that trail is about, I say there's three and a half kilometers of asphalt. It's about a three kilometer loop, depending upon how you take it. Um, and then when we start making snow in the winter, our trail system is about five kilometers long. Okay. So we put snow over the grass area on the north end of our trails, and then we cover the asphalt as well. Um, so we've got um, those two distances, and the trails are broken up quite nicely. More, uh, John Morton from Morton Trails designed it. John John was a biathlon coach back way, way back in the day, um, and he's designed many um, world-class uh, ski courses, bike trails, uh, it, it, you know, hiking trails. He's, he's, he's another authority on that kind of stuff. And yeah. it was so great getting to work with him. I've read his books and to be able to have direct <laughs> conversation with him was amazing. Um, learned a lot from that guy as well, but he set it up. So we've got cutoffs that happen frequently within the course. So there's areas where if you don't want to climb up this big hill, there's a cutoff. Um, and also we're able to um, have the course set up like we're going to be running the uh, Wisconsin high school sprints, uh, sprint championships this, this winter. And, uh, we needed a one kilometer and like in a 1.3 kilometer course. Well, we'd have the cutoffs set up. So just don't do that 200 meters and you have your course distance that you need. Um, and then on top of that, we also have, um, 
uh, para targets in our range. And those para targets allow um, adaptive athletes, um, athletes that are in a sit ski, maybe with a spinal cord injury or missing a limb, uh, all the way through visually impaired skiers uh, or para athletes that can shoot on our range. and we have a course designed at 800 meters that has the correct elevation for a sit ski skier or other um, parasport athletes that, uh, you know, paranordic or parabathlon that want to come and do that. They're able to come and ski those areas and then come into the range and shoot. So um, many of the athletes, they all shoot in the prone position, which is laying down. And we have uh, 17 caliber air rifles that they use on a 10 meter target line versus the 50 meter target line that the other athletes shoot at. Um, and then we have have infrared rifles that are used um, for some of those athletes as well as youth athletes. And then the visually impaired uh, skiers use headphones and it's an auditory system that you try to find, you know, move horizontally until you get the the pitch to get as high as possible. And then you go vertically until you get the pitch to be as high as possible. And then you take your shot and uh, you're doing all that while your heart rates, you know, just like (laughs) when you get done riding into work, Joe, you know, your heart rate's 160 beats per minute. Now you're trying to sight in a rifle on something to hit it at that distance. So um, the trails are definitely made up so that you're able, to, we're able to accommodate everybody. And if, and and I've had roller skiers come out and said, I don't want to ski that hill. Well, you don't have to, you can just take this cut off and then go ski the flat areas if that's what you prefer and work okay. your way up to that as, as you, as you feel you get better at it. My wife's family lives in Reedsville. So okay. I've driven through brilliant all the time and driven past what, was this a pretty natural area or did you guys have to do a lot of moving and land moving and to, to get it how you wanted to? Uh, so the, I would say there was a fair amount of shaping that needed to okay. be done. Um, the pond was not, um, that's, it's not a natural pond. Um, that pond was dug. It's a clay line pond. Okay. Um, so they did quite a bit of excavating in an area, um, to, to build that up. Um, the biathlon range was dug out of the side of a hill, but most of the rest of the area, you know, other than the grading that needed to be done, uh, for the trails themselves, there wasn't a lot, I think, other than the earth moving for those areas and, um, that, that really needed to be done. So, um, it, lend itself well to it. I know that when John Morton and Max Cobb uh, came out to look at the potential for putting this venue in there and they were driving out, they flew into Appleton and they were driving out and they were like, this is flat. How are we going to have a Nordic (laughs) venue out here? This is flat as can be. And they got to the venue and started walking around and they thought we can actually make this work. And there's a a term called homologation that we would have to have in order to hold a world cup here. And that's meeting certain criteria for elevation distance and, and, and those kind of things. And, and we don't have that um, capability to be homologated for a world cup race. So uh, IBU, which is international biathlon union or FIS, which is the international uh, federation of uh, of international skiing um, that if, you don't have that you're, you're kind of out of the running to be able to have okay. a race for that um and and that's okay because the people that come out and say well, you don't have any big hills i said just go ski a lap and then come back and talk to me and the cool thing about it is is that if you climb up a hill you go down a hill so you're giving it all back right away you got to climb up again and you're transitioning constantly so it's not okay. like you're going out 
west where you might climb for a kilometer, but then you're like descending for a kilometer um, here or more than that, you know, and, and you get a lot of rest here. It's it's up and down and up and down and and um, and you're constantly working. So for me, that's really cool to see people come back in and say, OK, point taken. You can go <laughs> ski your marathon, ski, ski 10 laps and you'll get yep. your 50K in and you'll have skied a bunch of elevation during that. So um, that's uh so the so the venue is is not it wasn't like this is the area we're going to pick because it's got all the stuff we need okay. the land was in the family and and it was something that worked and and they were able able to make it all happen within that venue you know right where uh, the round lake farms venue uh, is and overlooks that space john morton must be a, a lot like a golf course architect is that the first step i guess in building this is just for him to get out there and get a feel for the land take it in and then he does whatever he does and takes that back and, and builds a design. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, hundred percent. He's by getting him on boots on the ground because he's used to seeing things and 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 I think you know people that are in that design world um, can visualize things better than most other people. So you know, looking at, when I was trying to research this place before I even talked to anybody, I'm, I'm like looking at Google Earth and. I, looking around brilliant, moving around and around and around. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. There's nowhere where this is. I can't see this anywhere. Now, if I look at it and there's nothing like on, on any of the map programs yet that show the trails, I can see them just because I, I was sure. involved in, in, do we have to change them here? Do we have to move this here? Do we have to put in another trail here? Um, being involved in that part of it. Now it's like, I can see the map when I close my eyes, which is great. Um, so yes, so a guy like John can come in and look at it and make something out of it um, and then say, this is where your pump house should be and this is where your pond should be and this is where the rest of your trails and this is where your biathlon range should be. And then the rest of it's just up to the capable hands of the excavators and um, and the, the guys doing the pipe installation and, and the wiring and, and all that. Um, these guys were on site for over a year, you know, wow. seeing them every single day. And, you know, they, uh, they're not too often you're on a job site that long i don't think right so uh yeah so so getting started is very much like a like a golf course i'm sure talking more about just you specifically a little bit what one thing that we, we didn't talk about we we mentioned that you've been skiing since you know you were born basically but <laughs> you were in the Birkebeiner a, a bunch like 18 times i mean that's that's the the largest yes. cross-country ski marathon i mean that's what's that experience like what's that training like what what's that race like uh, it's definitely, um, a rite of passage for some people. Um, it's a badge of honor for some people. Um, I got into it cause my ski coach said, Hey, you know, we, this Birkebeiner or the Birkebeiner's coming up. I wasn't old enough to ski the, uh, the marathon yet. So I went to ski the half marathon, which is called the Cordelopit. Um, and you started at the halfway point and skied to the finish, um, or started at the be started at the beginning with everybody else and skied to the halfway point, I think is the way that it worked at that time. And, um, it was just to get into a sea of like, my parents dropped me off. <laughs> it, like, I don't know at the time, maybe six or 7,000 people. Wow. And they're like, we'll see you later. You know? And I, I can't <laughs> imagine letting my kid do that at 14 or 15 years old or however old I was when we started doing that. But, um, 
so yeah, I, I had a handful of the Cordelopic races in under my belt uh, before I was um, before I was of age to be able to do it, um, and then after that, just kept skiing them. You know, regardless of where I was at in life, if uh, I was, I, I had a time period where I said I don't want to do it if I can't be competitive anymore. Um, you know, and after having my son and, and really not skiing uh, a lot, you know, I thought, boy, it doesn't matter to me. I just want to have a good time. I want to I want to enjoy skiing and um, I'm able to get out and still do that. So there were times when I, I wouldn't ski a lot when I was younger and I could still ski a three hour marathon or a three hour and 15 minute marathon. Um, the training for that is it's serious dedication. I mean, at, at the point where I am right now. Um, I can't put in the time. I can't put in the hours that I used to be able to put in. And as you get older and, you know, strength and, uh, endurance, uh, those two lines kind of start passing each other. <laughs> um, <Yes>. you, uh, <laughs> you, um, you, you got to figure out how to make it work and, and your numbers slide back from a first wave skier. You know, they have all these waves and, and so many people gauge how good somebody else is by what wave they ski out of. So whether you're an elite wave skier or a first wave skier, or a fifth wave skier or further back, you know, you're still completing it. You know, you're getting out there in, in whatever the elements are the day of in your skinny ski suit and you're going to go out and, and ski a marathon on some of the biggest hills, um, you know, wow. World Cup hills that uh, in the in the north woods of Wisconsin. So um, the training as a, as a young guy was easier for me. Um, I could get out and ski or I'd just go and hill run, um, whatever, whatever my coach told me I needed to do at that point in time. Um, and then later in life, just, just trying to ski two, three times a week. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, that I mentioned earlier, that's, that's, a, an accomplished skier. Um, we'd go out and do like 60, uh, do, do, um, biking during the summer, do 60 mile Sundays. Uh, and then the rest of the week we're on our own to do our own interval training. And, and that was in the heart of it. You know, when I could sleep three hours after doing a gig and then go out and ski for four hours, it's three or four hours in the morning. Um, you know, it's not easy to do that anymore. If I get one of those a week, I'm a lucky guy. Right. Um, so, but yeah, to watch those numbers increase and, and, um, you know, to, to be getting up to close to the birch leggings bib now. And, um, I think that's great. I'm still going to keep doing it. I want to be like Ernie St. Germain, uh, who's the only one that has skied every single Berkebiner, you know, and this year it's going to be 50 for them. So oh he skied every Berkebiner and, you know, and I, granted I haven't skied every one, but I'm, I can remember, you know, something unique about every single one that I've skied. So last year it was, I was looking at, this is going to be great because I'm going to be at a ski venue. I'm going to ski every single day. I'm going to be in great shape and I'm going to be able to get a really good finish time this year and a great placement. And I spent more time grooming in the piston bully <laughs> so that by the time I skied the marathon, I had spent more time skiing the marathon than I actually had time on skis training the whole year. Oh. And it's just, uh, I don't know how I did survive that actually it was pretty brutal <laughs> recovery for the next few days. But, um, yeah, everybody, to, if you haven't, if somebody hasn't skied it and they're, they're, um, you know, aspiring to be a, a, a cross country skier, it's definitely a, a rite of passage to, to go and do that and get your medal and get your pins every year sure. after that. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. 
Do you still ride your road bike at all? Your your uh, pedal bike? Yes, yeah. I do ride my road bike uh, quite a few. Yeah, we're uh, where we live in in the Delafield area. We're right by the bike path, so I can go out right through the park, and I'm on the bike path. I've got a I got an Orbea that I got from uh, a good friend of mine a while ago, and um, plumbed his house for him, and he gave me the bike. So nice. that was a good trade off. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That and a time trial bike, so I still get out and ride both of those uh, when yeah. I have opportunity. But now I'm going to have to get into fat biking and mountain biking more than uh, yeah. Than in the past, so uh, keep all my faculties together, so I'm not uh, not crashing doing those kind of things. Absolutely, so, and barter away. I love yeah. that. Yeah, no, you gotta. I, those <laughs> those bikes are so. Oh. Expensive. Ski gear right now is like so insanely expensive. Yeah. I was just thinking the other day, like I gotta, I'm gonna have to get another pair of skis, and and uh, I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to have to take out a second mortgage here pretty soon to get some new equipment. So bikes are far worse. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, I'm almost so. embarrassed to say being a, a 50 or 50 ish year old person, I don't know how to cross country ski. I maybe did it when I was younger, but do you guys offer classes out there where, where come out there and learn to cross country ski? Yes, absolutely. We have uh, Nordic ski lessons for classic skiing, for skate skiing. We have uh, cross-country ski rentals for both uh, uh, classic and skate. Uh, we partner with Pete's Garage out of Green Bay, um, and Pete, uh, Kurt brings down uh, a bunch of skis for us. We have a separate building this year for our rentals to happen out of. Oh, so wow. if you want to come out and, and get a lesson and you don't have skis, we can get you fit up. Um, and then we've got, like I said, different areas in the trail where we can go into our stadium area or a penalty loop area. Area and and have a nice flat area to, to learn how to ski um, and you can sign up for that sort of thing at aaronsnordic.com uh, and uh, be able to get yourself uh, set up for the for the year and once you get your you know your ski lesson in and, and your rentals and you decide you want to try shooting biathlon next thing you know you'll be addicted to that and you'll be out there as a as a biathlete skiing races uh, you know a couple times a month Olympics what 2055 maybe for me. <laughs> <laughs> So have you like taken advantage and getting out on like pristine and just, I'm going to get out and I'm going to try this because I want to be the first one out on this trail. So there's a thing called first tracks with cross country skiers. And when somebody shows up in the morning at, you know, the second the gate opens um, and gets to ski on it, um, that's a special thing for people to get sometimes. Okay. Uh, it doesn't always happen. And uh, <laughs> there's, so <laughs> I would be lying if I said I haven't done that. Um, <laughs> but I, after 12 hours, 14 hours in the groomer, sometimes uh, going out and trying to ski some hills is probably not the best <laughs> move. Uh, so there's times when, yes, I would love to, I'll take that picture and want to lock the gate. But if I see somebody rolling up, I, I feel really happy yeah. for them that they're getting that first traction option every day. Um, so it's sometimes for me, it's, it's kind of cool. Cause I'll see the same person show up or there'll be a couple of cars and each of those guys is like vying for it. And then once <laughs> one guy goes one way, the other guy will go the other way so he can get his own first track. So, um, yeah, it's. It is a special thing um, to yeah. be able to get those first tracks and and experience uh, what most people never get to experience, especially in a race, because it'll have hundreds of people in right. front of them. And by the time they get to what was once pristine corduroy, it's mashed potatoes. And then yeah. you're skiing in that the whole time. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I like that one a lot. <laughs> Thank you.
your facility too, I mean, you also do events. Like, can you have weddings and, and um, just events and things like that there as well, right? Yeah, so we have, yeah, so uh, Round Lake Farms is our event venue that we have on site. Um, and that event venue is able to uh, like host weddings, uh, you know, through the summer with a lot of weddings, corporate events, um, business meetings, those kind of things happen in that uh, event venue. And then during the winter, when it's not used as much for that, uh, we open up the uh, the tiller bar, which is downstairs of the venue. Um, and so we'll have, you know, um, food and apps and, and, um, and, you know, the full bar open um, a few nights during the week. And then we have a full service kitchen there now. We just, um, the hospitality just hired on a, a chef and a sous chef. So um, we're hoping to be able to have other food offerings um, in kind of a operate ski lodge type feel uh, in that venue during the winter uh, so that skiers can take advantage of that. You know, specifically when we have large events, we'll be doing that. And then we'll find other times throughout the, uh, throughout the winter where we can uh, offer some opportunities with that. And then we've been finding out recently that people want to have rehearsal dinners uh, and rehearsal events um, at the Nordic Center out on the patio that surrounds it. So it's kind of a nice, you know, you got a beautiful backdrop. You're looking out over, uh, you know, a couple hundred acres of, uh, of, of beautiful field and uh, you know, fire pits out there and places to to enjoy some music and and we have uh, during the summer we have an open patio and and we have bands sometimes that are solo artists that play out there as well which is nice for some community engagement but yeah. um, but also you have those other opportunities for venue rentals uh, through uh, through Ron Lake Farms which is which is a really great opportunity there. Well, to make it an ease of even half dozen, this place is just absolutely incredible. And I yeah. cannot wait to get out there. And, and I'm going to come out there this winter and, and uh, take advantage of some, some of your uh, some of your trails. Absolutely. This is in, just love it. It's been a pleasure. It's been a true pleasure to get to know you and talk to you and just learn about this place. Like I said, right at the beginning, just really had no idea that this was here. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. You guys are uh, great. I really love what you guys are doing. Um, you, you do a great job of this. And after doing quite a few of these, this is uh, this has been one of my one of my more favorite ones to do here. So, uh, thank you. Appreciate it very much. Well, I, second, Joe, thank you so much for your story. First of all, that's incredible. Just learning everything about you. And you know, I like like I said, I drive past this facility and pass through Brilliant. Uh, it seems like more than once a week but quite a bit and uh it it is special it is really really amazing and you know the aaron's corporation in a whole what a wonderful thing it does for the city of brilliant as well so thank you so much for your time really appreciate it you bet thank you guys very much really appreciate the opportunity Tosh, it's Red Smith Banquet Throwback time. We've got a good one this this week. We um, this episode of the Nusa Cast, we have we talk a lot about Aaron's, which is a fantastic Wisconsin company, and we have another really wonderful Wisconsin company. We we've all know this company for sure. Every time we take a shower or step foot in a bathroom, it's the Kohler Company. Absolutely. And we had uh, we had Herb Kohler come and grace our presence at the Red Smith Banquet back in 2004. If you're in the sports, you you understand why. But you might be like, why would you have a hospitality and plumbing <laughs> guy 
come to the Red Smith Sports Banquet. I mean, that's, you know, what the Kohler Corporation is known for. I mean, it's been around for forever, it seems like. They're, you know, in a national, uh, not international industry. We all got to go. Um, but Herb Kohler, <laughs> we've all used them. Absolutely. But Herb Kohler um, was a visionary behind the golf courses. Um, 1998, or 1988, Black Wolf Run. A uh, beautiful golf course. I've had the pleasure of golfing that course. Uh, they added a second 18 um, in 1990. Uh, 1998, they hosted the uh, U.S. Women's Open. So we have 88 and 90 uh, for Black Wolf Run and the uh, Meadows course. Women's U.S. Open in 1998. Uh, then Whistling Straits um, was added in uh, 1998 as well. And Whistling Straits was the first, 2004 was the first year that Whistling Straits hosted the PGA Championship, which is the year he came to the Red Smith. Yeah, absolutely. The, one of the reasons why, like like you said, we, we brought him to the banquet. I thought, one, it was appropriate to crown him the, you know, the Red Smith Award winner. I mean, he he's the very definition of somebody making a difference in the state of Wisconsin. And, and he, I mean, Tasha, I, I think it's fair to say he completely changed the way golf is looked at here in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, think about the courses that are here now, like the world renowned courses. There's when these lists come out of the top 50 world's best courses, there's five of them are in the state of Wisconsin. And and Herb Kohler is the one that started that obviously with black wolf run. And, you know, now there's just, there's a bunch of them now and and they're all kind of clustered in that just hundred mile radius here of basically Lake Winnebago. So it was appropriate that that he came and and then to have the PGA Championship. I mean that's that's a major event coming to the state of Wisconsin. Right, absolutely incredible to think about that that was here and and certainly since two thousand four we've had Ryder Cups that have been. I mean that's on the world stage. We've we've had women's U.S. Opens. We've had um, another PGA you know event and and more lined up and and that's that right. was the vision of Herb Kohler. Um, you know, RIP, but what, what a guy. And, and I've got to tell you that night too. I think, in fact, I know he was the very first guest that we ever had at the Red Smith banquet that, that arrived via his own personal jet, which parked out at the Outagamie <laughs> County airport. He, he came in, did his thing and then uh, brought him back out to his jet and he jetted off to somewhere in the world. I'm not sure where. That's crazy. I, I remember sitting and talking with him mm-hmm. a little bit and uh, just you're, you're in awe of a person, you know, we have talked with numerous athletes, but you're talking about somebody who runs a multi billion dollar company, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an amazing organization and just his presence was awe inspiring. It it really is. It's, it's, you're absolutely right, Tash. I mean, the, the athletes are one thing and you see them perform and you're in awe, but to think about a business guy, you know, a true business yeah. titan visionary. I mean, he he he, he redefined the world of plumbing. We're, we're not going to get into that. But he also, for the state of Wisconsin, <laughs> redefined the world of golf and what it can do and the potential and the tourism and, and everything that that leads to. That that came from from him. And there's not many people like that. And and you're right. He he's he's when when you're in the same room with him, it's it's, it's a pretty special feeling. Yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. I uh, hope you enjoy this throwback and uh, continue to listen and uh, to watch on YouTube. 
and join our podcast anytime on any of the places you get your podcasts like iTunes or Spotify. And also check out the AppletonSportsPage.com for any local sports news. Red Smith Sports Awards. Banquet Throwback. Red Smith Award, of course, goes to someone who has made some unique contributions to sport in Wisconsin. And also epitomizes the great values that Red Smith exhibited. Let's give a Red Smith welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to award the 2004 Red Smith Award to the man who has put Wisconsin's center stage in the world of golf, Herb Kohler. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Judge Troy, Mike Reitz, Mr. Kunitz, friends, Young people, ladies and gentlemen, I can't tell you what an honor it is to receive an award named for Richard Red Smith. But I have to tell you of an irony, probably many of you are familiar with it, but the irony was really just came home to me very recently. And this irony is that there are two famous Red Smiths both in sports, both went to Notre Dame, and both at the same time to Notre Dame. The other Smith, Walter Red Smith, became a Pulitzer Prize winning sports writer. And he once described our Richard Red Smith as large, round, companionable, and patient except for the patient part, that's a damn good description of me. <laughs> but our Red Smith really was an amazing guy, doing double duty as an amateur, a professional, a coach, and a manager, both baseball and football often at the same time. Sure makes you maintain your focus. In the late 30s and early 40s, Red was both manager of the Green Bay Blue Jays and line coach of the Green Bay Packers at the same time. I dare say Red was able to maintain his focus better than I do, bouncing from toilets to engines, <laughs> to furniture to generators, to horses to hotel rooms, and yes, golf courses. I can really appreciate though the level of excellence he was able to achieve in both of these sports. But even more remarkable, he was able to do it while really enjoying his beer. <laughs> According to Walter Red Smith, Richard Red Smith, a coach of the Chicago Cubs from 1945 to 1948, was less explosive temperamentally than Jim Gallagher, the Cubs general manager, 
and could consume even more beer than Charlie Grimm, the manager. <laughs> Red, therefore, was assigned to sit up nights with executives of other clubs in the hope that they might grow mellow enough to trade him either a 20-game winner or a 325 hitter for nothing more than a round of drinks and a player to be named later. <laughs> in the end, it, it really must have worked because in 1945, the Cubs played in the World Series. What I appreciate most about Red is that in the mid-50s, he was able to retire from sports as the general manager of a brewery. <laughs> By George, maybe I can do the same. <laughs> when we decided to venture into the golf business, it wasn't because I knew anything about golf. It was solely because of our guests at the American Club a fledgling resort hotel kept asking for something more. So we did extensive research, decided we could do this, designated some land on the edge of a wildlife preserve, picked some architects, and our, in our infinite wisdom, immediately fired them. <laughs> After they staked the first few holes, because they believed that every par three and every second shot of a par four or par five had to look down on the green. And while this would have made our course a lot easier, it also would have made the distance from green to tee a lot longer because our land moved in and out of a deep river valley left behind by a glacial runoff. Long green to tee walks don't bother golf carts, but they do eliminate tournament play. So it was, we entered another round of architects and through some mysterious circumstance, even though he had a reputation for moving more dirt than anyone else, he always left behind a landscape that looked more natural and more challenging than any other designer we could find. And so it was, we found Pete Dye. He built 18 holes, and not only did it sell out in its first year, but Golf Digest called it the best new public course of 1988. We built another hole, nine holes, and it sold out. Then we built a fourth nine holes, and Golf Digest wrote a one-page editorial saying that Herb Kohler and Pete Dye had committed the worst crime in golf. They said we had broken up the course that they had designated in 1988 as the best new course, and they made the accusation, interestingly, without looking at either of the new nines. Never in the world would I have believed that people could be so sensitive with their awards. But to their lasting credit, the following year, when they did view the course, they wrote another one-page editorial saying that the new 18-hole combinations were equally as good, if not better than the first. They followed that up in the year 2000 by giving both the courses at Black Wolf Run five-star awards, and there were only a total of 16 of those kinds of awards out of the 15,000 courses reviewed. 
having done our research on the nature of the game, and then having launched full-scale production in the building of four golf courses for we amateurs and for major tournament play, I don't think I would encounter anything significantly unanticipated or unexpected. But boy, have I been wrong. Firstly, the national and international awareness and recognition of these golf courses has translated to many of our other products. There is a strong synergistic effect I never would have predicted or expected. Secondly, and more important, the outpouring of support from across Wisconsin. All records were broken in that 98 for the U.S. Women's Open, and they still stand. A year and a half ago, we had 8,000 requests for 3,000 volunteer positions for this 04 championship. Likewise, the advanced ticket sales has surprised PGA officials and, in fact, has broken all their previous records. I can't say enough about what the support from across Wisconsin means to this and future events. What we've experienced this year will go a long way in determining whether Wisconsin will be awarded future majors, and I am very optimistic. But thirdly, I never expected to discover how important the values of this game and the teaching of those values really are, particularly for young people and particularly for those associated with the first tee who never would be able to experience the game and its values were it not for organizations like that. The self-discipline and the raw integrity required to declare a penalty on oneself is unlike any other game. For young and old alike, it is a rigorous learning and maturation experience like none other. This whole evolution of Kohler into golf, for me, has been a remarkable experience. To be honored with the Red Smith Award for something in itself so fulfilling, I really don't know what to say. I am deeply touched. I thank you. All right, MusiCast listeners, it's time for that little segment where we forget about something and we want to never forget about something as well. Um, so, Joe, what do you have? What do you want to forget that's forgotten? Well, Tash, what, I, what I'd like to forget. Now, I understand that these things are very helpful and they help solve crime and, and, and all of that. But these ring doorbells. Okay. As a letter carrier. <laughs> I like the big doorbell. I don't mind being on camera, but do they need to talk to me? Do they need to whistle at me? These things now are programmed. The other day I'm walking and I wear earbuds, so I can, I can certainly hear what's going on, but you're not always super focused on what, what you're, what you're hearing around you. And all of a sudden I hear this whistle. So I look around and I hear somebody start talking to me 
and somebody's talking to me through the doorbell. I'm not even up to the porch yet, but these darn things are, they're wigging me out, Tosh. They just, they, they keep talking to me. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I, I'd like to forget the ring doorbell. I, they serve a purpose. They're, they're better than the old fashioned doorbell, the ding dong doorbell, I guess. But uh, I don't know. Kids can't play ding dong so, ditch anymore. I guess that that's, that, that's no, a long lost game. That's true. The doorbell is actually talking to you, not the person inside the house. I think it's both. I, I think I think you can do okay. both because I've I've had them, I've had them like have a generic whistle, and I don't know if that's supposed to scare you off or whatever. But every time I walk up to the porch, yeah. you hear that thing. Um, <laughs> it always gets me. But I, I think because this has happened to me now twice, where I've had people actually talking to me, and I I have to. It takes a minute to adjust. Like, is somebody actually talking to me? But yeah, they, they can. Yeah. They're having a video conversation, but you don't expect it. I mean, I don't expect to be talking right. to somebody and not even up on their porch yet. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. I mean, the technology That's is crazy. amazing, but it uh, maybe this is just an old guy thing, but I need to get adjusted to it because I want to forget it. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, no, it serves a purpose. Yeah, That's for no sure. No doubt. So that, that that's my life, Tash. I don't know. How about you? What are, what are you forgetting? Well, if our listeners who have come back time and time again probably notice I'm a little stuffed up and voice doesn't sound <laughs> quite the same, so I want to forget about these uh, these winter colds and little uh, respiratory illnesses that we always seem to get once uh, once we start heading into winter and, and travel through winter. I, I hate these. They're just annoying. They just make you feel like crap, and uh, they, they pass, but they're annoying. That's all it is for me. Gosh, you sound great, really. <laughs> Just want to pass through and get back so I can actually breathe through my nose again instead of being a mouth breather. Breather. No, I, I hear you, man. Your your, your head feels like it's going to explode. It's all part of it. I, exactly. I feel bad for you, but uh, we'll find you a bar and you can go sing the blues for us. How about that? There you go. Maybe some whiskey. Yeah, there you go. That'll help. It always helps, right? <laughs> Numbs the pain. All right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Joe, what what are you never forgetting? Well, Tash, a great weekend, you know, Thanksgiving Day weekend. And, and and one of the neat things about Thanksgiving Day weekend is just connecting with old friends. And had that opportunity this weekend to um, just connect with old friends. And, and I'm just, I'm never forgetting the fact that I'm fortunate enough that, that I've had literally lifelong friends, friends that I've had since kindergarten. Tash, you're one of them. I've, you know, we've known each other since seventh grade, but hooked up with a buddy that I've known since kindergarten and we, we reconnected and just made me remember that um i'm just never forgetting my lifelong friends it's uh i feel really i feel really really i don't blessed is the right word i'm not sure that that you know yeah. I, I have uh yeah, lifelong friends I, I know not everybody has that so i feel very fortunate to, to have that that's yeah, awesome absolutely that is fantastic that's something you yeah the the friends that you make and maybe you don't see for a few years but then you make a connection yeah. again and you just back to where you were. It's that's, funny you say that because that's exactly things. what we said. I mean, we, we hadn't seen each other and, and it's been a long time, like several, several years, but you just hop right in. You know, the stories start flowing. Yeah. You start just remembering things from, well, shoot at this point, 40 years ago, but it's just fresh <laughs> in your mind. And there's, there's not many people that you can connect on that level. So never forgetting right. that. And Tash, how about you? What are you never forgetting? Well, the hockey season officially starts. Man, I, I've grown to love hockey rinks. I know they're cold, but there's always a grilled burger or a hot dog. Yeah. You're sitting next to people cheering on teams, and you're doing it the right way where you're, you're cheering. You say, hey, 
even though it was the other team, that was a fantastic pass. So you, you meet people and you connect with people and it's just hockey is a little different. You know, you have to be a little different to, to be in hockey and appreciate, you know, what these kids are doing on stake blades <laughs> and how they handle the puck. And it's a, it, it's a, it's a fun environment. And you know, hockey rings aren't glamorous by any stretch of the imagination. Champion center might be an exception in some of the new places like the cornerstone, but for the most part, we're playing in old rinks and they're cold. Like Shano, you can see the banners, the wind <laughs> coming through. Cause it's a horse barn during the summer. It's uh, it, they're, they're crazy. So they're old, they're drafty, they're cold, but there's something about them that, that, you know, I will never forget the time that my boys have been yeah, playing. I love that. I'm, I'm glad you realize that you're, you're taking it in because it, it does go so fast. And, and to be able to yeah. soak those memories in and those feelings and those smells. I mean, you there's certain smells right on some of those buildings. It's just that it, <laughs> Absolutely. it's hard to describe. And that concessions too, Tash, is there anything better than just concessions? I just love it. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, we were in Sheboygan this weekend at the uh, Sheboygan Lakers Ice Center. Nice. And actually, if you walked into the bathroom, you could see a crack in the wall that, that went outside. So that's probably not yeah. a good thing. But that tells you about the state of state of ice rinks. But, um, you know, a cheap cup of coffee, yeah. maybe a hot chocolate. Yeah. Uh, if you're lucky and they're, they're grilling some burgers or some awesome. Uh, they had some really good uh, Sheboygan brats yes. at oh, this one. Yeah, so. Yep. So good uh, Missfield buns and uh, Missfield brats. And uh, I forgot the bakery. There's a small bakery in, in, Sean, in Sheboygan that's known for their hard roll brat buns. And that, that's what they had. It was fantastic. Tosh, I think I'm going to hop on the fat tire and go get some brats for tonight's dinner. You're making me hungry. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, good stuff. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Those, those are some good forgotten and never forgetting. And we appreciate you listening along with us and maybe coming up with some of your own and if you have some of your own you should let us know yeah speak to us through socials engage with us us and engage with us and let us know if there's something that we can mention from a from a listener like you absolutely newsacast at gmail.com or any of our socials check us out on youtube we'd love to connect with you guys Thank you for listening to another great episode of the NoosaCast. We'd really appreciate it if you'd hit up our social pages, subscribe, like, follow, and don't be afraid to engage. Head over to our YouTube channel to get exclusive content like the full interviews and speeches from past Red Smith banquets. Thanks for listening to the NoosaCast. We really appreciate your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so and tell a friend. A huge thank you to Digstown for all the music in today's episode. Catch a gig or find them on Spotify. Help us grow by subscribing wherever you get your pods or sharing the NoosaCast. Follow us on Facebook, X, TikTok, or Instagram. One of the best ways to help us grow is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
Northeastern Wisconsin Sports Advancement is a 501c3 organization. Our mission is to raise money, provide support, and bring greater awareness for youth sports organizations in Northeast Wisconsin. We do this primarily through the Red Smith Sports Award Banquet and the NoosaCast. Each year, we give back to the community through three initiatives, the Every Kid Plays Grant, the Gives Back Initiative, and scholarships to student athletes. 